1: Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the unravelling sexual harassment scandal at Westminster and the Bank of England's decision to raise interest rates ahead of the budget. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, public policy correspondent, Helen Worrell, chief economics commentator, Martin Wolfe, and portfolio manager at Blackrock, Rupert Harrison. Thank you all for joining. It has been another tumultuous week in British politics since the last one. Throughout this week, a rolling series of allegations have been made about the past, recent and further conduct of MPs and ministers, resulting in the shock resignation of Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon and the even more shocking elevation of Gavin Williamson from the Whip's Office to the Ministry of Defence. Questions are hanging in the air about what is coming next, where there'll be further departures from the Cabinet and once again, whether Theresa May can survive this crisis. George Parker, Westminster has a slightly end of days feel to it at the moment. Um, I argued uh, this week that this could have a similar impact to the public's perception on politics as the MP's expenses scandal, someone who was there then and there now. Mm. What's the general atmosphere like?
2: It's uh, fearful, it's um, sour, it's very defensive. And you're right that MPs do feel the comparisons between this and the expenses scandal. Some of them think this could be a more damaging scandal for MPs in the sense that it's it's human beings involved rather than just cash. So yes, it's a fearful atmosphere. It's uh, cutting across all party lines, of course. But I think from a political point of view, it's especially dangerous for Theresa May, given the fact that Conservatives are the governing party, And frankly, they've got enough problems on their plates trying to deal with Brexit with no majority and no money. And now this comes along. It's a huge blow to the to the May government, as well as to the body politic of British politics.
1: It's quite amazing because this all started with the Harvey Weinstein scan. I think nobody could have predicted this would have gone from Hollywood all the way to Westminster. And this stuff has obviously been. Bubbling away for years, and a lot of these allegations pop up every so often. But the sheer torrent of things, including this infamous dossier of 36 MPs, which is slightly toxic in a way because there's a lot of stuff on that dossier that isn't actually yeah. misconduct, consenting adults having relationship. You know, so some people said, "Oh, well, actually, this is a bit of a witch hunt." But there's some really serious allegations, in, including two of rape, this week.
2: Yeah, that's right. There, are, you, you meet some MPs who privately will say, well, you we can't say this publicly, but there are elements of a witch hunt to this. But I think generally the view is that this has been going on for too long and it had to be exposed. And as you say, rumours like this have been swirling around for a long time, but the difference this time is it's reached a critical mass and the Harvey Weinstein affair brought the whole thing into focus. It went for Hollywood, into the BBC, and then very quickly into Westminster. And now it's in Westminster. I can't see it stopping for possibly a number of weeks. And that's hugely dangerous for our political classes and very damaging, I think, for for Westminster generally.
3: I have to say, I think it's actually quite amazing in some ways that this stuff hasn't come out before. I think it's very difficult if you haven't worked in Westminster or you don't know the culture of Westminster to really underestimate the extent to which it's an extremely strange working environment. You've got lots of MPs who live away from their families, their families may be in their constituencies, so they are essentially living in London alone during the week. There's lots of out-of-hours, carousing, drinking, socialising. A lot of the information exchange, both between MPs and between MPs and journalists is done over long lunches, long dinners, drinks in strangers' bar. And I think this is actually combined to create an environment in which harassment and more serious abuse can proliferate.
1: Because the Palace of Westminster has about 14,000 people who work there, Helen. It's very... Unique work environment, apart from the fact it's a very old building, very small, very cramped, it feels so hermetically sealed from the rest of society. A lot of new MPs, you've seen particularly of the Labour intake, sort of come into this and say, What is this place? It's so traditional, and the whole thing is really based on power structures. You know, particularly if you're a staffer, most MPs have two or three staffers who work in Westminster. It's all about who your MP is, how big their office is, who they know, where you're situated. And it creates this very odd dynamic. Now, obviously, you get power dynamics in any workplace, whether it's the City of London or the media or entertainment industry, but it feels particularly potent in Westminster because it's a a system that is based on patronage.
3: Absolutely. I think there are many, many ways in which this system is a complete anachronism. And I think there are lots of things about it that would shock people who, who don't work there. MPs directly recruit and hire their own staff. And as a staff member working as a researcher for an MP, you're very much beholden to them for your career advancement, for your progression through politics. There are lots of very ambitious people going straight from university at a young age, maybe not without experience of being elsewhere in the workplace, going straight into Parliament and being in this situation where actually there are relatively few protections of their rights and they may not know who they can speak out to if things start to go wrong.
1: It's quite complicated, George, because essentially it's 650 small businesses mm. operating in this Victorian ear palace. And if you say to MPs, maybe there should be a central HR system. And they say, well, hang on a minute. We're not responsible to the parliamentary authorities. We're responsible to the people, the electorate. Mm. And you get this constant clash about where those lines are. And Parliament, uh, under Speaker John Burko has done no a lot to try and strengthen the systems for reporting such things. Things. But even still, the fact that this is essentially being done through the media shows that there's a real failing in how Parliament is operating to allow people to raise this allegation and see them sort of, you know, the case of Bex Bailey, who is a well-known Labour activist who spoke out this week about very serious sexual harassment allegation that wasn't reported because she was told it would damage her career within the party. That again shows as much about the culture as about the structures.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. Lots of MPs are resistant to the idea of having an independent authority overseeing hiring and staff contracts, basically, of workers at Westminster. So they, they think it became too bureaucratic after the expenses scandal when so-called IPSA was set up. Uh, so they do resist that. But you know I think the structures that Helen has just been describing are antiquated. I think John Burko rightly is saying it's not just for the parliamentary authorities. This is down to the political parties themselves to sort things out. And we've had the episode this week of Calvin Hopkins, a Labour MP who's been suspended now after allegations were made against him, but only after Jeremy Corbyn had promoted him to the Labour front bench. And there's a lot of naming and people accusing each other of various things in the Labour Party as a result of that case, but it runs right across party lines of of people being reported and frankly, nothing much happening.
3: I also think this element of people high up in the party having known about these allegations is something that's actually quite shocking, but it it really does seem to be a theme here. There are lots of people against whom there seem to be fairly, there's a general awareness that their behaviour in the past has not necessarily been entirely above board, and when you start asking MPs about it, when you start talking to party activists about it, it's no secret. A lot of these things have been well known for quite a long time.
1: Let's pick up on one of the more practical things that happened as the result these allegations, George, which was the resignation of Sir Michael Fallon as Defence Secretary. This began with a story on the front page of The Sun about him putting his hand on a a journalist's knee and then also some comments that he apparently made to Andrea Leadsom, leader of the House of Commons. Was it a surprise to you that Sir Michael resigned? It seemed to come a bit somewhat out of the blue.
2: I think the timing of it was quite surprising. I don't think anyone expected him to resign quite that quickly. But nevertheless, once the allegation had been printed on the front page of The Sun about him putting his hand on the knee of Julia Hartley Brewer, the journalist, people started asking questions about whether this was a one-off event. It happened 15 years ago and Westminster being what it is, there were rumours swirling around of other episodes. Michael Fallon's own team were asking people, if they knew of any other incidents, they were trying to get to the bottom of this to see what more was going to come out. But of course, we now know that things were brought to a head by the fact that Andrea Leadsom, the leader of the House of Commons, went to see the prime minister's chief of staff with a series of specific allegations against Michael Fallon. Now, Michael Fallon denies saying some of the things that Andrea Leadsom said that he said to her. But nevertheless, I think that that was the final straw as far as Theresa May is concerned, because the last thing you want in these kinds of episodes, if there's to be a drip feed and for you to lose control of the story. That's exactly what happened to John Major back in the 1990s. He was being knocked around by events. So I think in the end, Theresa May said to Michael Fallon, look you're either going to have to go voluntarily or you're going to be fired.
1: But it sort of feels like that's what's happening anyway, Helen, because, you know, Michael Fallon has gone and that's sort of almost drawn a line under that. But there's still many questions hanging over other people, including Damien Green, the deputy prime Minister, who's had some allegations put to him and he's being investigated by Sir Jeremy Hayward, the cabinet secretary at the moment. And nobody seems to think that this is the end of this. And I think all eyes will be on the Sunday newspapers to see what other allegations there are. And it does have that feel as if it's going to be a continual drip about ministers, and cabinet ministers and MPs and things they've done in the past.
3: I think that's true and this definitely has the feeling of something that is endemic. I mean, you mentioned the hit list of 36 Tory MPs and while that's extremely controversial, some of the allegations on there are extremely shocking. And I think this is not something that is this is going to sort of quickly go away. I mean, one thing that's just worth saying about the prime minister, you know, when she was in the Home Office she also held the women in inequalities brief. Theresa May herself is someone who has very much eschewed late night drinking she's not a particularly clubbable person she doesn't frequent the bars of Westminster and I think you could see very much on her face during Andrea Ledson's statement earlier this week she's completely and utterly appalled by this and I can imagine that it's something she really really wants to stamp on before it gets out of control the question is whether or not now that we've opened the floodgates we can sort of stem the tide of allegations mm. that are going to come out
1: and then of course following Sir Michael Fallon's resignation George we then had a mini reshuffle and we had a very surprising choice for defence actually the form of Gavin Williamson who was the chief whip and has been pretty successful in the sense that he didn't lose a single vote during this very hung parliament made quite a lot of enemies in the Conservative Parliamentary Party who did not shy away from speaking to the media this week and putting out their views about Mr Williamson. And the basic allegation is this is a guy who has never spoken at the dispatch box, has never been a minister, does not have any experience of running a big department, and is now in charge of the military at a time of which there's big questions about Mm. equipment, personnel, funding, Britain's role in the world, NATO, North Korea. And this is now all on his plate with someone who has no military experience whatsoever in his past. So I think that was certainly a shock when that came. There was a pretty good quote as well that uh, you reported on from a minister that sort of summarised how the parliamentary Conservative Party is feeling.
2: Yeah, one minister said to me that this appointment was rather like uh, Caligula appointing his horse as a consul as one of his last acts as emperor. And... There were a number of people who said this would be Theresa May's last mistake. I don't remember there being a more angry backlash to any specific ministerial appointment in a reshuffle. People were coming out of the House of Commons tea rooms with their ears steaming. I think some people thought that Theresa May missed a good opportunity to put a woman into the Ministry of Defence. Penny Mordaunt was a name being talked about. We've never had a female defence secretary. I think that's one thing. But also there was a sense that here was almost the... Gavin Williamson was the judge and executioner of, of Michael Fallon, that he would have advised the Prime Minister on whether Michael Fallon could stay. Michael Fallon went, and then, lo and behold, the best person for the job was Gavin Williamson. Chief Whip's always held in some suspicion. I mean, Gavin Williamson is someone who sinuously moved from being the uh, private secretary to Parliamentary Private Secretary to David Cameron, then quickly moved to being Theresa May's campaign manager. One of the very few people who managed to survive the political carnage around the Theresa May first-term chiefs of staff, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill. He stayed in with them. So someone who's very adaptable, staying very close to power, and also someone who's extremely ambitious. I see he's now been installed as sixth place in the Bookie's ratings to be the next Prime Minister and I'm, I should think he's probably sees himself even higher up the ratings than that.
3: Well this really is something out of the Francis Urquhart mm. School of Promotion isn't it I mean for those fans of the first and original House of Cards the idea of the Chief Whip who has dirt on everyone working his way up and finally potentially taking on the leadership of the party is something that some people have compared mm. to the current situation with Gavin Williamson.
1: And the thing that's most bizarre this whole um, harassment scandal is about the Whip's office. What did they know? Did they know about the conduct? And the guy who's in charge of that is the one who's just been promoted and rewarded. So I think that's where a lot of the anger came from. But I think going back to this leadership question, George, you know, before Theresa May's disastrous Tory conference speech, I think everyone forgot this little talent show that Gavin Williamson ran Mm. for the hall where, you know, chief whips don't normally give big speeches to party conferences. But Gavin Williamson was up before the PM and brought out all these new fresh faced 2017 intake Tory MPs who were a diverse bunch they're not your kind of moded career politicians they come from different parts of the country different professions and the imagery of that was quite clear it was here I am here's my next generation Mm. and here's what I'm putting forward to you so clearly Mr. Williamson does want to be Prime Minister and Mm. sees himself as the leader of this new generation but do you think he's done his reputation so much damage over this situation that the party would never ever accept him I've no idea what real support base he's got
2: well, he's as you say, he does hold a lot of knowledge, which is uh, is always useful. He has the uh, the whip's book, and he has a an, an ally now as the chief whip. So he has he has power and he has patronage. Has he damaged himself by allowing himself to be promoted into the position? Possibly, yes. But nevertheless, what the political landscape will look like in a couple of years time when I predict Theresa May will no longer be prime minister, it's very hard to tell. But you're right, he's put himself at this, almost a, a vanguard of the top 2015-27 in, intake, as someone who can represent their interests and maybe a generational break. But it's a long shot. As you say, we've never actually heard him speak from the dispatch box in the House of Commons. So whether he can be the next prime minister is <laughs> quite a big question, isn't it?
1: Helen, out of all this, where does Theresa May come out of it? Because at the beginning, she said she would take a zero-tolerance approach to any of these allegations and sort of kick anybody out of the Tory party who had been alleged. But if you take the instance of Stephen Crabb, a former leadership contender who's been alleged to be sending texts of inappropriate nature to younger people, yet he's still in the Conservative Party, so it doesn't feel as if she's really on top of this scandal, and as George was saying, it is going to be a drip, 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 and it could just end up consuming her government at a time when she's got the budget approaching, Brexit negotiations, the economy stalling, inflation's rising. You know, it's a very febrile time at the moment for a prime minister who's in a very difficult spot, who seems to have somewhat still tuned out.
3: I think the absolutely key thing for Theresa May at the moment is to really engage with the other parties and make this into a cross-parliamentary attempt to crack down on this. I mean, clearly, the priority needs to be a sort of confidential reporting system so that people can raise allegations and concerns um, in in a way that they are not themselves going to be outed or or made public. And I think the sooner that she can actually advance some kind of cross-party discussion on this and show that they're making progress and show that some concrete steps are being taken the better
2: yes i totally agree i think she needs to get on top of this very quickly i think it's a big test for her it's actually an area where she, as helen was alluding to earlier she does actually have a track record of defending women's rights and of promoting women in parliament it's a good opportunity for her to get ahead of the game the fact that she looked like she was being pushed into action this week by andrea ledsam as we were discussing earlier didn't bode very well but i think it's a big test for Theresa may because this is going to be something which as with john major and Slees, will be a real test of leadership and pose a real danger to her government.
1: And for Jeremy Corbyn too, because as you said, these allegations are cross-party and the list of allegations against Labour is growing and it's obviously received less attention because it's not the governing party. They're not running the country. But there's real questions over that party's procedures for dealing with these things too.
2: Yeah, that's true. And just because the Labour MPs in question are, are less likely to be household names and they're not running the country, as you say, doesn't disguise the fact there is a problem. There's a problem which, frankly, people have talked about for a while. Is there a, an element of misogyny in the Labour Party, particularly on the left of the Labour Party? Do people turn a blind eye to things? That certainly seems to have been the case with Kelvin Hopkins, who was promoted after specific allegations were made against him. So, yes, I think there's lots of uh, blame-sharing going on in the Labour Party because they realise this is a dangerous moment for Jeremy Corbyn too.
1: And as Ruth Davidson said this week, there's going to be some very big shovels needed to clear out this rather ageing shed big economic news from the UK this week was the Bank of England's decision to raise interest rates for the first time in a decade, and crucially, the first time since the big financial crash. The slight increase to 0.5% has gone down surprisingly badly with markets and the City of London, perhaps because of the weak state of the UK economy and some of the Brexit uncertainties ahead. Martin Wolf, do you think Mark Carney made the right decision to raise interest rates, obviously with inflation soaring, and the UK's employment ever increasing and there is an argument that it was time to cool things down a bit.
4: Yes, I should address that, at least notionally, it wasn't Mark Carney's decision. It was he, the MPC's Though I have to say the distinction in the case of this governor is rather difficult to draw. He's no Mervyn King who will be happy to be outvoted. But anyway... I think it's very difficult to get excited about this either way. There's a perfectly reasonable case that we need to tighten monetary policy a bit. It is important to remember we got to a quarter point immediately after the shock of the Brexit vote. We were at half a percentage point for the whole previous period after the crisis. We're back there. By any normal standards, monetary policy is enormously loose. And even if they w- will, as Ben Broadman seems to indicate, tighten a couple of uh, quarter points further, it would still remain highly supportive. I don't feel strongly in all truth either way. It's unlikely, it seems to me, to turn out to be a huge mistake, but we really don't know. The economy is very difficult to read now.
1: Rupert Harrison, what did you make of the decision? Because as I said, it got a relatively bad perception and the Bank of England has had to go out there again on Friday to explain why it did this. And I think obviously savers are very angsty about increasing interest rates, particularly given where the huge levels of consumer debt at the moment.
5: Well, from a market point of view, it was a classic example of the, the old adage, buy the rumor, sell the fact. And so the big story was back in September, the Bank of England really shocked everyone by revealing that they were getting close to raising interest rates. And I think everyone had the assumption that Mark Carney was pretty dovish, he was concerned about Brexit, and that the, an interest rate was a long way off. And uh, we saw a big change, they really talked that up in September. So relative to the expectation, when the news came, the language around it was quite dovish in the sense that it didn't give the impression that the bank were sort of raring to get a second hike uh, anytime soon. And I think they had to send Ben Broadbent out to, uh, you know, on the Today programme to try and really convince people that you know they really were determined to raise interest rates, and you know you better watch out. Uh, I think I think markets are still a little bit sceptical, and I think it all comes down to this question of what is the impact of Brexit. I think it's pretty clear that you know, Brexit is having an impact on the economy, but The judgment that Mark Carney and the Bank of England have made is that it's having an impact not just on what people are spending and therefore the demand side of the economy, but it's having an impact on the potential growth rate of the economy, particularly if businesses and particularly international businesses are going to invest less in the UK, then the rate at which the UK economy can grow before it starts generating inflation might be significantly lower than it was. And of course, this comes after a long period of very weak productivity growth. So it was quite a pessimistic picture from the Bank of England that despite sluggish growth they had to raise rates. I think that this rate hike is probably justified. I personally would be biding my time before the next one. It's perhaps worth noting that in addition to the very important point Rupert's made
4: net immigration is slowing. I mean it's not dramatic but that's been an important source of increase of the labour force and that's another reason why the bank is justified I think in believing pretty obviously, fewer Europeans are coming, that the supply potential of the UK economy will grow more slowly than it would otherwise have done. And after all, that was the point of Brexit, wasn't it?
1: Well, as we said in the in, in an FT editorial this week, Martin, that essentially what Mark Carney did was take out a slight insurance policy when... Um, rate was slashed ever so slightly after the Brexit vote last summer, and he's essentially cashing that in now because all the signs we've had that although growth is continuing, the economy is sort of bumping along, there are some factors that show things are really beginning to weaken there, and which obviously has a big knock on effect for the public finances
4: too. The public finances seem to have done rather better than people expected. It's since the Chancellor spoke in March. Things have gone a bit better than expected in terms of outcomes, but it is true. The Institute for Fiscal Studies made it clear in its analysis that we certainly can't be confident that that will continue. And my guess would be that Philip Hammond will be inclined to take a very cautious and conservative view, certainly not overthrow the, the rules he's just introduced. He'll find some money to give away but I will be very surprised if we're going to have a very exciting giveaway budget as long as he's Chancellor.
1: Well, Rupert, it's obviously that time of year with the, the leaves changing colour, it's colder in the wind, and that normally means autumn statement. But Now, this is a budget because the autumn statement, as we used to call it, has been abolished. And it's a pretty tricky set of circumstances for Mr Hammond because he's got this public appetite to have some kind of goodies, some kind of relief, but at the same time, he's not wanting to go into massively reduce his fiscal targets. Going to continue focus on cutting down the deficit. And in political terms, the last three budgets have all blown up and taken a big political impact on the chancellors and their prime ministers. So it's a difficult tightrope he's got to walk there.
5: Indeed, maybe just worth saying, I think, two points before we get on to the politics. There are two very important fundamental linkages between the Bank of England decision and the budget. The first is this poor productivity performance, which is really the reason that the Bank of England is raising interest rates despite pretty sluggish growth. It's that very, very same poor productivity growth that is likely to lead the Office of Budget Responsibility to judge that productivity is not going to pick up like they thought. And despite, as Martin said, sort of short-term improvement in the public finances, in those later years of his forecast, he's probably going to get a pretty significant downgrade, and that will probably be the main story on the day. I think the second link from the interest rate rise is that I think that Philip Hammond's, you know, the challenges to continuing to bring down the deficit are now entirely political. You know, really at the point where the Bank of England is starting to raise interest rates and tighten monetary policy, there isn't really an economic argument for loosening up on fiscal policy because the economy is really at full employment, it's generating inflation, the Bank of England's concerned about that. And so, from I think from an economic point of view, you should continue to try and deal with this deficit because it's still a problem. The politics are the problem, the politics of fatigue in the population, politics of a very small majority in the House of Commons, and as you say, the politics of the fact that every big event that the government has done recently has unravelled. And I think that this has, you know, if I was advising Philip Hammond now, I would say, play it safe. You just need to get through the budget unscarred and without a massive U-turn, and that would be, relative to recent history, a success.
4: I think one point that is certainly in his mind, it's a nightmare job at the moment, pretty obviously, for many dimensions. But I think he, he probably because who he is and because of where we are in the Brexit negotiations, which is nowhere, as it were, we haven't got anywhere. He is clearly very keen to preserve confidence in the British economy, preserve confidence of investors, preserve confidence of people who, are, who will invest, people who are here, who are thinking about leaving. So I think he would consider it and I think he will be right, cardinal mistake to give the impression to the world that right now when everything's so difficult, we're going to throw away discipline and caution. That would be, in his view, and I would share that view, I think Rupert would too, huge error. On the other hand, it's clear all the political pressure is on the other side. Is he strong enough to resist? I, I really don't know. you probably better judge of that than I am. I think the, the Chancellor is certainly
1: very frustrated that members of the Cabinet have been freelancing on the government's economic policies over the summer, talking about the public sector pay cap, talking about housing investment. These are obviously political challenges for the government and at some point they will have to tackle them. But given where we are, as you said, with Brexit and the state of the economy, I think he's all which people would just leave the economics to him.
5: I, I think that lack of discipline really started with the election in a way. We had an election campaign where Theresa May and her team were determined to talk about anything other than the economy. They didn't want to go in on the record of dealing with the public finances. And that has really, I think, set the tone now that you know from there to talking about loosening the public sector so pay cap cabinet ministers going on talking about borrowing £50 billion you know, here or there I think that he does need to do something to acknowledge those concerns while also re-establishing his authority
1: That's, That seems absolutely true. Do you think the Chancellor should be worried about inflation at all Martin because it's obviously been creeping up over the past year still at pretty low levels in terms of sort of in historic
4: terms but as a source of concern Well, Rupert didn't mention it but I presume that one of its effects is that it's going to raise public spending more or less automatically because there are things that... Are- yeah
5: there's bad inflation And good inflation when it comes to the public finances. Bad inflation is imported from abroad or from oil prices, and good inflation is if the wages are growing rapidly because, of course, then the money floods. This is obviously
4: bad inflation. We've mainly got bad inflation. This is mainly bad. I mean, this is largely a reflection of the past exchange rate. Collapse Now, the optimistic view is that we've had the exchange rate collapse. It's now quite a long time ago. It's passing through. It won't be transmitted to wages. So it'll be a temporary blip upwards. And that's very good in terms of monetary policy, but also means the effect on public spending will be limited. Obviously, we haven't discussed it. The real nightmare for everybody is that it does get transmitted to wages we start getting a bit of a wage price spiral in a world with no productivity growth that's our real nightmare and then the bank of england has to tighten much more and fiscal policy becomes a real problem and this is to me, probably the biggest challenge after Brexit facing the UK
1: economy, Rupert, that, um, you know, everyone talks about unlocking the productivity puzzle, trying to get wages growing quicker, but there's probably no quick fix solution. Philip Hammond couldn't stand up and do one thing. It's a whole series of things, a lot of things that will take a long time, like skills and education and all the rest of it. You know, if you were still in the Treasury, what kind of things would you be thinking about doing to try and tackle that? Because unless you fix that, then it's going to be years and years of very sluggish growth.
5: I mean, you're absolutely right, absolutely truth about productivity is not only is there no quick fix, but also we don't really understand why productivity growth has slowed down, not just in the UK, but around the world. And we don't have a good model of, you know, you pull this lever and productivity growth will go up by this amount. We know the kinds of things we should be doing. And the UK has already been doing a lot of them needs to do more, whether it's skills, investment in infrastructure, issues like housing are as much a political, but also relevant to things like productivity. But I think that for a chance of the exchequer, you have to sort of separate this in a way into two boxes, you need to Be ambitious on the things that you can do to try and raise the level of productivity growth in the long term. But you also have to face reality in the short term. And I think the Office for Budget Responsibility helps in forcing chances to do that. In the end, if we are growing more slowly than we used to, then we need to spend accordingly.
4: I've been criticising the OBR for quite a long time for not downgrading their forecast. They've been consistently too optimistic. And they, it seems, from what we are told, that they have finally bit the in. We have to assume, as things are at the moment, that our trend growth isn't, particularly with the Brexit, to not much above 1%, 1.5%. That is a reality check, and the, the Treasury has to respond. And that's
1: it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Helen, Rupert and Martin for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire and Anna Dedhar. Until next week, thanks for listening.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?